Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the New England Gothic. I am your host, Kate Ford. I am so sorry. This is a delayed episode. I knew it was bound to happen, but you know what? Let me explain. So I recently just invested in a way better microphone setup than what I currently had, so I sure as hell hope it sounds better to you all because if not, I just wasted a shitload of money that I don't really have. Because I don't get paid to do this, I just want to hear myself talk and sing you a song. I just had a lot of coffee. All right, are we ready for today's episode? Because clearly I am so ready. I did hot yoga this morning. Who am I? I'm on my second coffee of the day. I'm like hyped. I'm pumped. I'm so ready to talk about this spooky shit with you all. So before we dive into today's episode, I want to give you a little bit of a background on why I chose this subject because I've actually, well, I've known about this story since high school. I actually wrote a paper about it for my physics class. It was like, oh, interesting experiments from the past or something. I don't, I don't remember the prompt. I have been out of high school for like 12 years. Okay. I'm kind of old. That being said, my inspiration for today's episode comes from a book by an author named Mary Roach. She's an awesome, from what I remember, I haven't read anything by her since high school, but I remember her being really funny, really informative, really unbiased, like really great reporting, and she tackles interesting subjects. So this book in specific by her, I know she has a few, is called Stiff. So it's about what happens to the human body after you donate it to science and just like different science experiments involving death. And if you're like me, I've had a pretty unhealthy obsession with death since I was a child. You know, casual existential dread. I'm not 100% sure when my obsession with death started as a kid, but I have a sneaking suspicion it has to do with, you know, being raised Irish Catholic, sitting at mass, scary pictures of Jesus just bleeding everywhere, like his heart chest ripped open, like I'm crying because the pictures are so scary and they're like, Jesus died, Jesus died for you. And I'm like, what's died mean? And yeah, um, so as a kid, I was really morbid. I was really interested in, do you remember the books, Chicken Soup for the Soul? I would read every single version that came out, but I would only read the death and dying chapters. I was just like obsessed. And I was really interested in mythology from all different cultures and religions surrounding afterlives and heaven, hell, all those things. So um, to this day, I mean, it's probably obvious that I still have a little bit of that like morbid curiosity because here we are. I'm making this podcast. So anyway, circling back, the book Stiff by Mary Roach, if you, like for me, learning the science behind death has actually been really soothing and has helped my existential dread. For example, I have a really hard time flying. I get really anxious on planes. And she has a chapter on what happens to your body when you die in a plane crash. And for some reason, reading that chapter while on a plane is like soothing. I don't know. That's a little twisted. I probably should be in therapy. Hey, maybe BetterHelp will sponsor me. We'll see. All right, enough ranting. Today's story is called the 21 Grams Experiment. If you Google that, more information should come up, but there's not a ton of information out there on it, and I'm just going to read everything I found. 
I took a poll on Instagram recently and everybody was really excited about the possibility of longer episodes. So I've decided to add a lot more detail than what I was adding before. So if you're curious as to why my previous episodes are only like 15 minutes, I don't know how long this one's going to be. We're going to see, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be more than 15 minutes based on the amount I wrote down. Lots of effort for you guys. Okay. So please be nice and share and tell me I'm pretty and smart. And a lot of the information I got today, I probably already said it, but I wanted to make it clear. I got out of the book stiff because there's a whole chapter about this experiment. So the 21 grams experiment was fueled by the question, if a soul is real, is it tangible? What is it made out of? If it's tangible and made out of matter, it must weigh something. Is it something measurable? Our story takes place in the early 1900s, which is around the same time as the Victorian spiritualist movement and just a general time when the afterlife was very heavy on everyone's mind. No matter what class they were in, no matter what age, people were just kind of like dropping like flies, you know, 1900s. So it wasn't really uncommon for scientists and other intellectuals of the time to find themselves a part of this movement for trying to decode the meaning of life and death. There was no official tie between our main guy today, who I'll introduce you to in a moment, with the spiritualist movement, like he wasn't a spiritualist, but I just wanted to note this is happening at the same time and it was just like a trendy thing. So our main character today is a man named Duncan McDougall. So he was born in Glasgow in 1866 and he moved to Haverhill, Massachusetts when he was about 20. He attended Boston University School of Medicine and he received his medical degree. So he's obviously a doctor. After graduating, he returns to Haverhill where he begins his medical practice. He married Mary Storr and they had a son named John in 1885. Dr. McDougall volunteered his time at a home called the Collis Consumptives Home in the nearby town of Roxbury. The building had originally been home to a textile merchant, and when the building was turned into this group home, a platform scale had been left behind. That is important. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what a consumptive's home is, it was during the time when everyone was just dying from tuberculosis, and they would put them together in these group homes to just die together. So I couldn't find a source to 100% confirm this, but it's been implied that Dr. McDougall was a religious man, like he believed in God, heaven, or hell, you know, that whole thing. One day, he decides to place a dying patient on a cot on the scale that was left behind, and he records the weight. When the patient was placed on the bed, he was very close to death, like couldn't move, couldn't really do anything. So the doctor decides to slowly just, you know, keep an eye on his weight changes as he's dying. And the patient lost weight really slowly at the rate of one ounce per hour due to evaporation of moisture, you know, respiration, sweat. But he noticed that there was a bit of a dramatic drop right at the moment of what he claims was the patient's death. He said that there was up to one and a half ounces of weight lost instantly. So this inspires the experiments. Dun, dun, dun. And a slight trigger warning for the experiments, there is a mention of animal abuse, sadly, like a really sad animal abuse mention. So just warning. 
Here's a quick blurb about the first experiment from the doctor himself. So forgive me, I'm trying to read in the voice of this Victorian era doctor, okay? During all three hours and 40 minutes, I kept the beam end slightly above balance near the upper limiting bar in order to make the test more decisive if it should come. At the end of three hours and 40 minutes, he expired, and suddenly coincident with the death, the beam end dropped with an audible stroke, hitting against the lower limiting bar and remaining there with no rebound. The loss was ascertained to be up to three-fourths to one and a half ounce. This loss of weight could not be due to the evaporation of respiratory moisture and sweat because that had already been determined to go on, in his case, at the rate of 1 60th of an ounce per minute, whereas this loss was sudden and large. He continues to add, The bowels did not move. If they had moved, the weight would still have remained upon the bed except for a slow loss by the evaporation of moisture, depending, of course, upon the fluidity of the feces. The bladder evacuated one or two drams of urine. This remained upon the bed and could only have influenced the weight by slow, gradual evaporation and therefore in no way could account for the sudden loss. So his journal entries are basically reiterating the fact that at the time of the patient's death, again, I want to note that the time he claimed the patient died, he's not hooked up to any, you know, modern monitors, so you couldn't really exactly tell, but... I think, you know, he's a doctor at the time. I'm going to trust him. I'm not a doctor, so. But yeah, essentially, he's exploring all the options. He's exploring the reasons why this weight could shift so suddenly and drop so suddenly, and he can't explain it. And that's valid. I think that is an interesting point. He also noted that him and a colleague went on the bed and tried to practice, like, exhaling really dramatically to see if maybe like a loss of breath could account for the weight loss and it didn't change at all but I'm just like imagining them jumping up on the bed like (sighs) (sighs) so he writes in this case we certainly have an inexplicable loss of weight is it the soul substance how other shall we explain it so thus begins five years of experiments that he is carrying out with the help of other doctors. And during these experiments, Dr. McDougall identifies six patients whose deaths were imminent. Four were suffering from tuberculosis, one was dying from diabetes, and one just was unspecifically dying. It just says unspecified causes. Dr. McDougall specifically chose people who were suffering from conditions that were, you know, really physically exhausting, like they can't move, He needs patients to remain as still as possible as they're dying to measure them accurately. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall? He's, you know, placing a dying man on a bed and he's, hey, buddy, I know you're dying, but can you just sit like really still? Just like super still for like, just like while you're dying, just be really still. Thank you. Thank you so much. So when the patients he chose looked like they were close to death, their entire bed would be placed on this industrial-sized scale that was sensitive within two-tenths of an ounce, which is 5.6 grams. So after McDougall finishes on his human subjects, he repeats his experiments with a control group of 15 dogs. So trigger warning, he basically killed 15 dogs to observe that the results were uniformly negative with no loss of weight at death which corroborated his vague religious doctrine. Like I said, we can't confirm exactly what religion he was, 
but he said his religion said that animals have no souls. I think that's, I don't know. It sounds like he's probably Catholic. McDougal, I don't know. Or, I don't know, he's Scottish. Protestant? He's either Catholic or Protestant. I feel like there's only two options back then in Scotland. I should know I'm actually a little bit Scottish. Okay, anyway. So, he kills 15 dogs, and he did say, the ideal test would be on dogs that were dying from some disease that rendered them exhausted and incapable of struggle. But it was, quote, not my fortune to get dogs dying from such sickness. So that means he poisoned 15 innocent dogs. And I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't handle the 15 innocent dogs, okay? And why 15? You only experimented on like five people or six people. You gotta do 15 dogs? Ugh, sorry. That just drives me crazy. So because he killed 15 dogs, his facility starts to express concerns about the experiments. They're worried, you know... They're going to lose donations that were made to the hospital if people were going to get upset about the dogs, if there were any flaws in the experiment. And on the other hand, if McDougal was correct, then there was going to be scores of religious problems likely to arise when, quote, the soul was suddenly shown to be a physical manifestation of matter. So like a lot of issues could arise with this experiment, basically. So... By 1907, accounts of McDougall's experiments were published in the New York Times and the medical journal American Medicine, and they were not received well. I'm going to read a quote, okay? It's kind of mean. It's like old school science roast. (laughs) Sorry, I've had a cold. I'm like always sick. Okay, quote. Fellow Massachusetts doctor Augustus P. Clark took McDougall to task for having failed to take into account the sudden rise in body temperature at death when the blood stops being air-cooled via its circulation through the lungs. Clark posited that the sweating and moisture evaporation caused by this rise in body temperature would account for both the drop in the men's weight and the dog's failure to register one. Dogs cool themselves by panting, they cannot sweat. McDougall rebutted this without circulation, no blood could be brought to the surface of the skin and thus no surface cooling occurs. This debate went on from the May issue all the way to December. So they're like beefing in the American Medicine Journal and the New York Times. And obviously, you know, with all the dogs being killed and all the kind of like inconsistencies with this experiment, his peers were well within reason to critique him. He was even accused of fraud. Because the results were all over the place and the scientific community just straight up rejected him. So I'm going to go over some of the results like from each case. All right. So patient one, suddenly coincident with death, the loss was ascertained to be three fourths of an ounce. Patient number two, the weight loss was found to be half an ounce. Then my colleague ascertained that the heart was stopped and I tried again and the loss was one ounce and a half and 50 grains. Number three, my third case showed a weight of half an ounce lost coincident with death and an additional loss of one ounce a few minutes later. Number four, in the fourth case, unfortunately, our scales were not finally adjusted and there was a good deal of interference by people opposed to our work. I regard this test as no value. Number five, my fifth case showed a distinct drop in the beam requiring about three eighths of an ounce, which could not be accounted for. This occurred exactly simultaneously with death, but peculiar, peculiar, why is that word so hard? But peculiarly, (laughs) 
Normally I cut this out, but I'm leaving it in. Everyone needs to watch me struggle right now or listen to me struggle. Peculiarly. <laughs> Fuck. But strangely, on bringing the beam up again, the weights and later removing them, the beam did not sink back to stay for fully 15 minutes. Clearly I'm struggling and I don't even really know what that means. It just seems that like the beam was off and I don't think they could really use that data either. Okay, moving on to number six. My sixth and last case was not a fair test. The patient died within five minutes upon placed... Wow. I'm just leaving this in, okay? You all need to see the real me. My sixth and last case was not a fair test. The patient died almost within five minutes after being placed upon the bed and died while I was adjusting the beam. So as you can see from his six experiments, there's only like three ish that really were usable the official record states that out of six tests two had to be discarded one showed the immediate drop in weight two showed an immediate drop in weight which increased over time and then one showed an immediate drop of weight which reversed itself but then later reoccurred oh, okay i think that's the one where the beam was like all over the place and i just was having a moment and i couldn't comprehend what i was reading so even these results cannot be accepted at face value as the potential for experimental error was so high, especially because McDougall and his colleagues often had difficulty in determining the moment of death. Like I said, it's the 1900s. This is the key factor in their experiment, and they have no tools to really determine the actual moment of death. I'm obviously not a medical historian, but I'm assuming back in those days, you needed to touch the body with like a stethoscope or that little, hi, honeybee. I feel like this is the era where they'd put the little like horn to the chest or ear to try to hear the blood flowing. But yeah, they, how are they determining the exact moment of death without touching the patient? So McDougall claims that they timed the death by concluding that, quote, the soul's weight is removed from the body virtually at the instant of the last breath. Don't mind me literally running out of breath, as I said, last breath. So yeah, they're just basically admitting that they're just guessing when their last breath is and using that as the time. He does admit that these experiments would have to be repeated many times with many similar results before any conclusions could be drawn from them. So... In his defense, like he's really honest during this whole process. He throws out the experiments that he doesn't believe he can use. He admits, you know, we need to practice this. We need to do this many times to really make any conclusions. And people were kind of mean to him. I feel a little bad. Actually, no, he killed 15 dogs. I don't feel bad. I don't know. I'm torn. I have too much empathy. I'm a Pisces. Regardless of the critique that McDougall received, he did believe he was onto something. And four years later, the New York Times reported in a front page story that he had moved on to experiments which he hoped would allow him to take pictures of the soul. So like aura photography. Here's a quote from that New York Times article. Dr. Duncan McDougall of Haverhill, who has experimented much in the observation of death, in an interview published here today, expressed doubt that the experiments with x-rays about to be made at the University of Pennsylvania will be successful in picturing the human soul, because the x-ray is in reality a shadow picture. Dr. McDougall is convinced from a dozen experiments with dying people that the soul substance gives off a light resembling that of the interstellar ether. 
the weight of the sole he has determined to be from one half ounce to nearly one and a quarter ounce. This is like a prototype, like I said, for aura photography. He's basically saying, no, no, no. If you want to take a picture of a sole, you can't do an x-ray. You need to use a real camera, something that captures light, not shadows, because the sole is, as he quote, quoted, as he said, super beautiful. It's an interstellar ether. First of all, interstellar ether sounds beautiful. But essentially what he's saying is, I guess, you know, apparently someone at the University of Pennsylvania is trying to x-ray and find a soul. And he's saying, no, no, no. The soul is made up of interstellar ether. It's light. You can't use an x-ray because that captures shadows. You need to use something that captures light like photography. So this is kind of like a prototype for aura photography, which wouldn't be formally invented until a few decades after McDougall's death. And Aura photography is really popular these days. I've never gotten it done, but I would absolutely love to. So after 1911, I don't know why I said it like that. 1911. After 1911, there's no more experiments from Dr. McDougall, and he did pass away in 1920. So despite his efforts in the scientific community, as we all know now, he wasn't really well-received. But the religious community loved his findings, and the 21 grams theory is still quoted today amongst religious circles who believe in the human soul, who want to use his experiments to validate the existence of a human soul, to validate the existence of this tangible thing that moves on to heaven and hell. So basically, his experiments were not for nothing. At least someone took him seriously. I'm trying to justify killing 15 dogs still. I just, I really can't. But yeah, and then kind of, you know, the idea that you could capture the soul on photo. I like that. That's nice. That's a positive. We're looking for the positives. And yeah, that's our story. I know it's not super, super detailed. I'm trying to bring you all more in-depth stories as we go along. This story didn't have a lot of information out there on it, but I just thought it was so interesting. And before we end our episode today, as always, I really want to thank everyone for the support. Keep sharing with your friends. Just a quick little review on Spotify or Apple really genuinely helps a lot. Give me that quick little five stars, you know, just that love her. We love it. We love the New England Gothic. Obviously, you don't really have to do that, but it is much appreciated. And I want to give you all an update about where we're going with this podcast. So pretty soon I'm going to have some very interesting guests on here. I've been taking polls on Instagram to see what people would be interested in. So we've got cool guests. I'm actually, you know, call to action for all you listeners. I would love stories, any story, any spooky story, weird history, obscure thing, as long as it happened in New England or has anything to do with New England, please tell me. I would love to read it on the air. And yeah. As of now, that is what I've got going on. We're going to have merch soon. I'm really excited about that. And as always, if you have questions, comments, anything at all, I'm on Instagram, The New England Gothic. I am on TikTok as Creepy Caitlin. I post a lot of content that matches up with this podcast there. And you can email me at thenewenglandgothic at gmail.com. Eventually, I don't know, maybe we'll have a website. We're taking it day by day, people. We're going slow. Slow and steady wins the race. I'm ranting at this point. I'm always ranting at the end of the episode. So 
I'm just going to sign off. All right. Love ya. Goodbye. This has been the New England Gothic, and my name is Kate Ford.